Hello, and thank you so much for tuning in to Let's Talk, the official podcast of the National Runaway Safe Line. The National Runaway Safe Line, or NRS, is the federally supported national communication system for runaway and homeless youth in the United States, providing crisis support and resources to over 125,000 youth, families, and communities annually. I'm Christopher, the Communications and Graphic Design Coordinator for NRS, and I hope that you'll learn as much as I do on this journey to elevate the voices of young people and youth-facing organizations as they share their stories and highlight the complexities and intersections that are witnessed by 4.2 million youth facing homelessness each year. Today, I'm talking with Laurel Jacobs, who is the Clinical Program Manager with Child Help, one of the most referred resources by our crisis services team. Uh, how are you doing today, Laurel? I'm great. Thanks. Perfect. Would you mind sharing a little bit about yourself and your background in social work? Sure. Um, let's see. So um, I actually have a long history with child help. Um, when I first started with them 20 years ago, early in my career, um, I was a crisis counselor on it um, when I was first starting a graduate program. And and then I transitioned into my full-time career was a high school counselor. So I did that for several years. Um, then about six years ago, I decided to go back to school again, because why not get another graduate degree and reached out to Child Help because I love their mission. And that was about the same time that the hotline was adding text and chat. And it was just an absolute perfect, combination of all the passions that I have. And so I've been able to grow with that level of our service. And, um, and that's how I became the clinical program manager. For those people who are not familiar with child help, would you mind giving kind of like an overview of the organization and its mission? Absolutely. So the hotline, fun fact, is actually celebrating its 40th year of being a hotline. And so we are available 24 seven. We are confidential and we utilize professional degreed counselors in order to provide information, resources, and emotional support related to child abuse topics. The callers that reach out most often, it, it's a wide variety. You know, we hear from mostly adults that are concerned about children. It could be family members, it could be teachers, it could be community members, neighbors. Um, but we also hear from a lot of adult survivors that are just still struggling with the effects of their experiences um, and just people within the system. So it was just three years ago that Child Help earned a um, innovation grant in order to leverage technology because what we realized was the hotline predominantly heard from adults worried about kids. We wanted to reach out to youth directly and we know that online and tech te texting is where they feel more comfortable. So the response has been incredible. So now for three years, we've been able to do that and the overwhelming majority of contacts through text and chat are youth. We've been able to reach them. So it's been really incredible. That's really lovely to hear that, you know, more youth are finding ways to reach out. It seems like child help is a lot like NRS and that our focus is generally on a specific age group, ours being young people aged 12 to 21, but we do frequently find ourselves working with adults or young children. In fact, the age group of people that uh, are reaching out to us more frequently is actually skewing a lot younger. Would you say that the age range of people that are reaching out to you is skewing in any particular way? 
So I think we were a bit surprised. Our target population is similar, 13 to 24. That's what's written into our grant. We have a bunch of research projects related with it. So we're really studying that. But yes, we have had younger kids reach out, so under 12. And even that young adult population, particularly when it came to COVID, I think we really saw them as well, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point in here. But it has been a surprise of how young the, you know, the kids that have access to technology now and are able to reach out to us. You know, we really have to take that into account developmentally and how we interact with them. Can you offer any data related to the way that these young people, you know, under the age of 13 or so are reaching out to child health to find assistance, whether they're just looking for help or are actually in crisis when they call? So chat is probably our most common um, way that people reach out to us. So there's a, it's a website that you have to go to, childhelphotline.org, and there's a link there. I can give a good example. Even the COVID time period, and that, that was so pivotal for our growth and all kinds of situations that came up. But very often kids were saying they're on a school laptop, they're on a school Chromebook, they're, you know, things like that. So yeah, and even I was also kind of surprised as we've opened up this technology, how often people use their phones, they're still using a mobile phone, but they're not texting us, they're using the chat link to come in. So um, chat is definitely our highest volume, but obviously text is very easy as well. Do you know the ratio of children to adults for people who are contacting you in crisis? Um, it varies a little bit each year, but, um, and actually also just a little plug for our website, we post all of our research on there. We're doing tons of it. So all of this is accessible on our website under the research tab. Um, and so we have an impact report that comes out each year. And so generally speaking, it's gonna be 90 plus percent that reach out on calls are adults, 90 94%. When it comes to text and chats, it's so 45 to 50% are 13 to 17. So very good portion. Then we have kind of small percentages that are younger that fall under that. So 10 or so percent. And it's only 20 to 25% that are over age 25, right? So predominantly youth, young adult, like 24 and under are, are text and chat. For the children that are reaching out to you, what are you hearing from them the most? Interesting. So we track um, what presenting issues are. And so on calls, our most common concern is neglect. So people calling worried about kids. I mean, I think when it comes to your extreme things like uh, sexual abuse or physical abuse, people kind of know what to do. So neglect tends to come up more often on calls. For text and chat, and because it's youth, emotional abuse is far and away our most common topic. It's that really, really gray area, right? Where um, youth are upset about what's happening and they don't have either the understanding or the evidence to, to get someone to intervene. Now, with the youth that are reaching out to you guys, are they reaching out for things that are happening specifically at home, or are these also things that are happening in school or other places? Mostly home. I mean, again, particularly COVID was a really unique time. It really highlighted lots of new issues and, and limitations and things like that. But generally speaking, um, it's mostly home situations. We will have uh, youth that reach out about bullying that's happen in, happening in school. We hear about kids that um, are scared because they are being exploited by someone. They, they may confess that they sent a picture to someone they thought was a girl, and now that person is blackmailing them, and they're scared to death 
of who to tell and what to do, how to get it to stop. Um, you will have some like uh, stranger individuals, a coach, a teacher, you know, grooming type things, but predominantly home. How do you address a young person who is reaching out about, you know, possibly being groomed or something along those lines? So I, our message is pretty consistent, I think, most of the time. And we, we really live into the importance of us being a safe place, right? So someone that can ask questions and tell what's going on. And so we want to model that we believe them and that help is available. And so sometimes them being able to confess to us and us saying, yes, what you're saying is important. Who is a safe adult that you can tell? And so then we're usually trying to help them figure out who in their life they can go to or give them ideas of who to go to, um, because that's what's most important. They need to connect to someone in real life as well. I think today there, are, uh, especially with social media and the internet, there's a lot of language out there, a lot of buzzwords that people have in their vocabulary and don't necessarily know how to use them. That kind of lends to a lot of misconceptions. And I think when it comes to abuse of any kind, there are a lot of misconceptions, a lot of stigma, and a lot of misinformation. What are some of the biggest or most surprising misconceptions you hear from people reaching out to you, especially from young people? I love kind of the way you're going, because thinking about like awareness is always a good thing, right? I think that there has been a lot more awareness now about the impact that trauma can have, right? But sometimes those buzzwords that go with that is, gaslighting and a narcissistic parent and things like that. And sometimes those can be very general and you have kids reaching out, asking us to like diagnose their, their parents or they're, you know, they're wanting to say I'm being gaslighted, right? My parents don't listen to me, don't care what I think. They're disregarding who I am. But to work with that in the system is very difficult because, you know, the term gaslighting is not necessarily evidence to the system. System can't do very much with that. And so it is a delicate balance of really having to acknowledge the experiences that the youth is going through, trying to plant ideas of how they can cope with it or address it and what other resources they might have. So you're right, it can tip almost too far in some ways. And then you also have the very, very, very valid types of abuse that are happening, right? And, and these kids do need someone to verify that what's happening should be addressed. Absolutely. Is there any particular stigma that stands out when perhaps working with a particular community, like a community of color or the LGBTQIA plus community? So definitely the LGBTQI plus community has really, um, struggled. Here, let me back up one step. So we, on the text and chat hotline, there are a couple pre-questions that have to be asked because obviously we're blindfolded, right? We And we all want to know who we're working with. So we do ask age. We ask them to identify gender. Um, and we do ask location as well, just in case we can connect them with resources. But it has been really educational for us, I think, to be able to have that open text box where youth are able to self-identify all of their unique parts. And so for us, being able to see that, and then how often, if you have a child reaching out, talking about how their parents don't believe in who they are, they don't accept them for who they are, they, they give us a precursor of that being an, an issue. Does that make sense? And so you can kind of understand that. So yes, I think there's a higher rate of hurt that is happening for those populations. 
we don't necessarily, again, blindfolded. So we don't, we do not ask um, questions about ethnicity up front. We do have a post survey as well that tries to assess if they felt the service was helpful, if they feel more positive, that they feel less stress. Um, and they do have the option of, of answering there. But to be honest, that it, it rarely comes up in the conversation unless the child brings it up, right? Like my parents are old school, cultural, blah, blah, blah. That might be the only way it comes up. So that that blindfolded space really is trying to get down to the nitty gritty of what the child is experiencing. It's very similar with us where anonymity is a huge cornerstone in our service. It's something that people look for. And we find when we search ourselves online, one of the main things we do, of course, we see people on message forums like Reddit asking, if I call the National Runaway Safe Line, is it truly anonymous? Are they going to have ways to track me? And I'm sure you know, when it comes to certain things, we are mandatory reporters. So how do you explain mandatory reporting to these young kids in situations where it's necessary? Or do you find that people are concerned about mandatory reporting? Yes, sometimes. Not as often as I would think, but yes, there are um, some individuals that will come into the chat or text and ask right away, is this confidential? Is this anonymous? You know, those kinds of things. We are also in that middle ground where we are definitely confidential. We do have access to very limited information, but it's so limited, in fact, so like a cell phone, phone number, or even an IP address, it is not identifying. Right. So that is how we really protect. I'm sure it's similar for you guys. We really protect that safe space. Um, I think back to my time as a, a school counselor. Right. If a child came into me, one of my students and started to hint about being abused, but they didn't know what would happen and they were scared. The second I knew that abuse was happening, their choice is gone because now I'm a, I have to report. Right. So us being able to protect that space where someone can come in and say, this is what's happening, but they don't tell us, obviously they're, you know, and we're not asking their name and their identifying things. They truly get to vet out the fears and ask the questions and then decide what they want to do. Um, so we really seek to protect that. Now, you do have people that kind of fall in other directions too. If they drop information on us, right? So if they reach out and they, this tends to be adults. It tends to not be children. It tends to be adults that find our hotline, reach out, and then give name and address of a child that they are worried about. That prompts us. We now have to call. Um, but the unfortunate thing about that is that when we call, all we can give is name, address, concern. Whereas if we can convince someone to make the call themselves, that person has way more information and could actually probably contribute to the investigation much better than we can with a very shallow report, right? So our intent is always to encourage someone to report for themselves. And that includes the child too, because a child saying I'm a victim is a very powerful report compared to I'm worried about this child at such and such school, right? Wow. Yeah, it sounds like you work really hard to help people that are reaching out to you maintain the power in the conversation that they're having about abuse and things like that. Yes. When it comes to mandatory reporting um, and all of the challenges that have been brought on by COVID-19, do you find that there are any delays in submitting reports or hearing back about reports at all? So we don't, we don't actually hear back very often, unfortunately. I mean, we make frequent, semi-frequent reports of those situations that I, that I told you, but very rarely do we hear back, which is kind of unfortunate. You know, if you look at the COVID time, one of the things that I think was most interesting for our hotline 
you know, we were just starting at that time. So we, we launched in 2019 and then 2020 happened and, you know, the world shut down, right? And so all of these state-based child protective service agencies and hotlines were reporting drastic drops in volume, right? They were getting little to no calls to the hotline, to their hotlines. Well, that's because there were no mandated reporters seeing kids, right? Our numbers were skyrocketing because we had small ads going, but kids could find us and they're trapped at home, but they're not ready to call maybe the CPS number. And so they, our numbers were going up significantly. And it was a, there was a period of time there that it was really difficult because yes, you could try to convince someone to call, but a lot of places were shutting down services, right? Like we had to do so many, like just trying to figure out how to get a child safe or, or to cope right? Because you, you also, if you have a child that's coping with extreme emotional abuse, and now they're being cut off from all their friends, their only sources of support, their teachers, their consistency, you know, the, the, the pressure cooker that was happening in homes was really unique. Um, and we really tried to just step in and listen and, and offer ideas to those youth and families. Let's face it, families were reaching out too. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the topic of CPS, does it seem like there are more constraints since I guess I like to call it the false ending of COVID-19. So I think, I guess I haven't looked at the numbers in quite a bit, but I think that almost every state saw sharp increases to the calls um, to the state again when schools came back in session. Um, I think that before that, actually, emergency rooms ended up being reporters because they were seeing things that got to really extreme. So I think the CPS has you know, in this new normal, I think they've adapted. I will say we contribute to a lot of research in this. Like our, our, our quick saying is, if you build it, they will come, like about youth. And one of the most frustrating things is we're trying to convince a child who does not want to pick up a phone and call that they have to call someone to tell their story, right? But there, there have been an increase in states that have opened up online reporting for people besides mandated reporters. Many states have it for mandated reporting, um, but we're up to about eight or so states that have opened up for anyone can go online and make a report, which oh, is wow. huge. And then really exciting, we actually had one state um, reach out because they found our research and they opened up a text line for youth specifically that would help connect them to child protective services. So that has been incredible. That would be my huge message. If you build it, they will come. That is incredible. Mm-hmm. On the lines of COVID-19, what are the biggest changes you've seen since, you know, like you mentioned, you guys kind of started right before that all happened. Uh, so I think you're in a very unique position to really witness how things have changed since, again, we're in this like false end of COVID-19. So positive or negative, what are the biggest changes you've seen? So the the first thing I actually think about kind of goes back to something we were talking about earlier, where there's there's also been increased awareness on what teens are going through. So I think that there has been heightened attention paid to this depression and anxiety, um, the stressors that youth are experiencing, even suicide concerns. I think that has been a change since COVID. There, you know, prior to, you always think teens are kind of, I don't want to say dismissed a little bit, for the things that they go through, they don't understand. But I think that there's been a little bit more awareness and recognizing that 
it is intense what these kids have gone through, the traumas they have gone through. And I think that has been helpful and which does open up more options for people that are trying to connect with those teams. I mean, I would like to think that the kids that have gone back to schools, schools are now putting things into place where they can check in with teams more often. I think that's a positive. I think telehealth, the things that were added during that time frame has opened up access to families that maybe couldn't work out some of those services. So I think that that adds. I will say though, that there's a little bit of a double-edged sword because we definitely heard from the youth talking about counseling where they're trying to talk with a counselor, telehealth, and there's a parent in the room. And so that they can't be honest. Um, and so that that's a double-edged sword, right? More access, but also sometimes not um, as much privacy. So that's a positive and a negative. Mm -hmm. I, I like, that's a good point to point out because earlier we were talking about anonymity and that's kind of the point is that kids are worried about their family finding out that they're reaching out to National Runaway Safe Line because they may think that they're going to run away. When in a lot of cases, kids are actually just reaching us to find out information. Would you say it's the same that you actually get more people reaching out just for information as opposed to actually seeking help for someone who's currently in crisis? Yes. It, teens want to know what's going to happen. They, they, like, they want the details. Um, and I think that contributes huge to runaway risk. Um, I feel like we get contacts a lot and it's almost like the teen is asking us to give them permission to go, to go right. But the, the fear they have that if they finally tell their story and it's known that they told and nothing happens, that risk is too great. So it, for them, it's easier to get out right? It's not worth it in their mind. And some even have worries about what's going to happen to the family. Will my parents go to jail? Will my dad lose his job? What, you know, they know that their families are going through stressors. Um, and so they just want to know. And one of the hardest things is we can't give them a solid answer, right? There are times that it's, it's the more clear cut the abuse, the more, the higher chance of intervention, but there's a world of gray. And so we can't always offer that we have had a lot of kids reaching out for peers as well. Um, even like gaming kids, you know, I know a kid, I don't live in the same state as him. I can hear his parents in the background. I wanna help him, but I don't know what to do. You know, kids that are trying to get information for what their options are for being a bystander. When talking to children who are in a state of crisis, are there any situations where child help would be required to maybe inform the police? Uh, yes, um, they are rare, luckily, right? So um, we do have small bits of information in our system. So for example, if someone is reaching out from a cell phone and they're contacting us and saying, you know, it's emergency, we're going to vet that cell phone, like, please use your phone to contact nine because that's faster. We don't want to be in the middle of something that they could do faster, right? So if we have a child that reaches out, um, and this has happened, where they only have a computer, they have their school computer, let's say, and they know they just got a terrible report from school and their dad is supposed to be home in a couple hours and he's gonna be furious and whatnot. Counselors would walk through with a child sort of vetting, is there, who can you contact? Who, we always wanna connect them to someone local, right? A family member, someone else that can follow up. We're an anonymous hotline, right? Like we can't follow up with anybody. So who can we connect to in your life? But there have been times where if it is an emergency situation and that's the only way they can contact, we can transition to a by proxy where we would contact police and then we would like ask the questions that police is asking in order to get someone there. 
one of the things I find that people are, especially young people are asking is like, will you call the police? Is the person that I'm talking about going to get in any trouble? It could be the person that's abusing them. It could be the friend that's going to give them a place to stay. Or is my friend going to get in trouble? What is your method for helping out someone who has fears about the police being called? Yeah, we, we try to walk through it with them because again, we kind of can't know what's, I mean, so we try to educate them to consider that. So there is a very good chance that police will bring a minor back to their home. That is what they're supposed to do. Parents have a right. Now, if something is happening, you have to be honest about it, right? So again, it always goes back to telling your story, tell the truth about what's happening. Um, we have sometimes introduced the you know, they'll say, but I have this friend. I can go stay with a friend. There is a chance that someone could get in trouble. So finding ways around it. Would your parent give you permission to go for a while so you can both have a break, right? Like just trying to introduce those little small steps to reduce the risk. And then we also have a couple resources uh, like the safe place where you can text a little bit. So we like that too, because that again, gets them connected to a professional in the area that could possibly get other resources involved right? And help advocate for that child. So that's another um, thing that we will offer. One of my favorite things that I've seen an increase in since COVID-19 is the increase of mobile response units who are not tied to the police. These are people who are, like you said, degreed professionals who work maybe alongside the police, but are not policemen. Have you seen an increase in that in your area? And do you guys have a preference for reaching out to a mobile response unit as opposed to the police? So I too am so excited seeing some of that um, because again, you know, trauma informed is our passion, our focus. Um, and so I think sometimes that there's space for police to grow when it comes to, right? And so you just don't know who you're gonna be sending out. Um, so I have loved seeing that grow. What I found is that there's not a consistent place to find those connections. Again, we're national. I mean, we get calls from Canada as well. And so it can be hard to, always connect someone to that. But yes, we are starting to try to grow that, to consider that. My favorite is when I've actually seen two stories in the news in the last day or so of states or cities that are doing that through 911, right? Their 911 operators are doing it. That's better for us. Because if I can guide a kid to 911 and even tell them, ask for a crisis unit, right? Then that, that helps. That empowers them to know what to ask for. What are some of the connections that you see between child abuse and homelessness? The risk that kids see in telling what's happening, but nothing happening with the system, being left in the home, to me is one of the biggest factors of a kid just deciding to run instead, right? Um, I also, you hate to stereotype, but there's there's definitely a developmental normalcy to youth seeing everything in black and white. So I can't do this. So everything feels like the end of the world, right? It'll never get better. For kids, they just want to escape it. Anything is better than home in their mind. And I feel like sometimes they don't fully recognize the risks that come with, you know, truly living on the street or things like that. And yet, and yet, there are kids that have dealt with horrific abuse in the home, and that truly is the only way they can be safe. So it's such a gamut, right? Like a, um, so really trying to, we try to approach every single conversation in order to assess the severity, what has happened, what's been tried, you know, what, what are the options this child has? Um, but yeah, there's definitely overlap there.
you get calls from children who have already run away and aren't necessarily looking to return home, but are looking for resources? Some. Um, less than the ones who are about to run away or the ones that did run away and came back. So, I mean, I think there are some that are in there. Um, we definitely refer to, you know, Runaway Safe Line um, as well, just trying to, if they're trying to figure out options in case there are things that we aren't familiar with. But ironically, I don't, that population just isn't quite as big. So then looking at the ones who have run away and returned home, what is the conversation with those you've like? So similar, like, again, trying to to assess who any safe adults in that child's life are, right? I always, helping them get someone that can advocate for them. So whether it be a teacher that sees what's happening, a school nurse, that's been, when you think back to COVID, I feel like the bigger risk, there were so many kids that didn't go back to school, right? They stayed in home education settings. So they don't have access to all those support programs and safe people. Um, and so it can be hard for those kids that don't have safe adults. We literally have to try to convince them to contact Child Protective Services or things like that on their own. And for the kids that are, are going to run away, that's a, such a tough question. For the kids that are run away, is your goal to always deter them from running away or is it really kind of dependent on the situation? Dependent on situation, but I think that we would approach with trying to educate. Um, you know, again, kids can be very focused on, you know, one issue and not realize the risks that are associated, the limitations they have. You know, they so often teens want freedom and choice and, and, and even things. They want their phone and they want their stuff, right? There's those kinds of things. If you leave the house, are you getting those things, right? Like I understand the frustration of it. So trying to do that in a safe way, right? Not a put down way. Their feelings are valid. What they're experiencing is valid. But have you considered this, right? And so then to be able to have that safe conversation, introduce things, and then try to reduce the risk. So again, like that safe place thing, we might give them other, you know, websites that talk about coping or how to be safe, whether it be shelters, if we can find shelters in our, in our system, right? Again, those are, there's so many complicated things because we don't know how they will respond if they contact police or things like that, but just trying to convince them to connect to someone else that could be a safe place for them. When people contact child help through the hotline, are your services non-directive? Mostly, yes. I will say the language that we use, um, and again, this is back to the research part, um, when it comes to how you have this conversation in written form versus on the phone, so different. And again, this is all youth, written form. So man, it's a delicate process. But the language gets more directive, the more overt the abuse is. Right. Okay. So if I have a child that's reaching out um, and they're experiencing emotional abuse at home, their parents don't take their depression seriously. They won't connect them with a the therapist. They have thought about suicide. They're not actively suicidal, but they've thought about it. They're just miserable. Right. So, okay. So there's that level. Um, yes, we want to connect them to services. Here are resources. Here are your options. When it comes to emotional abuse, it can be hard to investigate. Then there are youth that reach out and say, uh, my brother is um, raping me. My parents don't know. That's going to be much more guided to you need to contact authorities, right? That, that's not a gray. That, that's a pretty overt. And there's a thousand degrees between those two things, right? So assessment 
is key for us, assessment, support, educating about options, and then trying to give someone resources and letting them choose what to do. Earlier when we were talking about facts and misconceptions, one of the things that I wanted to ask you is, is there a legal definition that we should focus on when talking about child abuse? Sadly, no. Um, and that's, it's actually great that you came back around because when it comes to misconceptions, you know, there, there's two levels of that. One, I think related to our hotline, one misconception is they think that we're a reporting agency, um, that somehow we have authority over all states, right? We're a nonprofit support agency, right? Like we are meant to guide and help and assist, but the authority is based on every state and every state has their own definition of every type of abuse. And some states don't have categories of abuse. A random example might be a medical neglect. You're gonna have some states that don't touch that. You're gonna have some that are very detailed about it. Drug use in the home might not be touched, might be addressed specifically. You know, what qualifies for neglect? There are so many variations. So again, as a, as a national hotline, we can't know all of those little details. So what we have to do is acknowledge the difficulty of what someone's going through and then try to get them to their state to find out you know, what, what the law says, what the potential response will be, and what their options are. Yeah, that sounds like a huge systemic barrier. <laughs> it is. Are, are there any other barriers or obstacles that you run into regularly? Well, when you look at the youth, again, the system has not caught up um, in two ways. The system is not caught up with lack of online reporting. I mean, text is tough. I mean, you would have to create systems that get enough information so that you're not wasting people's time, right? You would def it, there, the, those require big system decisions. But my, if you build it, they will come. There are youth that feel much more comfortable that way. We've talked to a couple of states that have added online and they've even shown that their calls didn't go down. They just got more reports. So more people were contacting, right? So... That to me is one huge barrier that they're not hearing from the direct people and they could because kids won't call. They just won't call. We literally have, a, uh, we're literally studying it. They have to answer a question for us. Would you have called? No, they will not have called even if they're in, in trouble. Oh, and, the, and then the other part of the system, I guess, is sort of the, I often feel this is big level view, but that it hasn't quite caught up with the research. We know that there are types of abuse that has very, clear effects on kids um, and the system unfortunately isn't set up to it heavily leans towards parental rights and so you know by the time a child is a teenager who has experienced abuse for a long time I mean they're just um, it's hard for them to feel like they are protected. Child Help has lots and lots and lots of programs lots of really great programs do you have any particular programs that you think are valuable for children who are considering ordering away or children who are at risk of abuse so um, our organization is obviously national so I mean we're a big organization our hotline is national and then we have um, a prevention education program for schools that's national but otherwise our other sites are only in certain states so we have a couple advocacy centers um, you know Phoenix and Tennessee we have residential treatment centers in a couple places a foster care program somewhere but we are not across the country if that makes sense so with the hotline, with our national reach there, um, we rely on a, a really robust 
constantly updated database and try to look for local resources, if that makes sense. So types, so uh, an advocacy center, if you have a family that is, is facing abuse, or let's say even a teenager that something has happened and the adults aren't believing them, I might try to direct that child to an advocacy center where the, where the professionals are all trained in working with youth. And it's one-stop shop, right? Like that, that's a huge resource. Instead of police who might not understand, right? Let's go someplace where people are developmentally knowledgeable. Um, otherwise, I think that a lot of times we have to rely on the, the idea of the safe adult and then figuring out who that might be for someone. For some, it might be family members, it might be a neighbor, it might be their friend's parents, it might be a teacher, it might be their coach, uh, it might be a church group. Like there, we have to try to process kids through being able to assess their situation, if that makes sense, um, and connect them to someone in real life. You've done it now, blindfolded, right, in this environment, now go do it in real life. Um, and then I'll just add on, it's just a small thing. Unfortunately, emotional abuse being the most common concern and stressor that kids have, the system is not necessarily ideal for that. So we can always, educate about the system, when to call CPS, when not to, but also trying to empower them that there are ways to get through. All those things that they are wanting, the freedom, the, the living into who they identify as and who they wanna be, the choices about all kinds of parts of their life. They get so caught up in the things they don't have as a teenager that we wanna try to increase perspective that if you can just hang in there, whatever coping it takes, whatever small things it takes, you have a lifetime of being able to get to those choices, right? Kids can forget. So man, that's a delicate conversation too, right? Because you don't want to be like, oh, you're fine. It'll be fine. That's not how you do that, right? Um, but still trying to. Yeah, you're saying things that to me, as someone who is 30 years old, I can remember how recently it was that I've developed these coping mechanisms for trauma and processing my feelings and emotions and things like that. So it's really wild that you're having to have these same conversations with people who are like in their teens or even younger. They don't believe you at first, for sure, right? They're like, don't even try to tell me coping skills. But if you try to say, you know what, what you're going through is so stressful. No wonder you you're feel like your mental health is failing. What do you do to feel better? Whatever it is, music, uh, relating to friends, I exercise, whatever, whatever your passion is, do that until you can get through. Was there anything that we didn't touch on that you think is important to kind of briefly talk about or to give people information about? The thing that pops in my head, number one, is it matters. Um, and two, it was funny that I think you started this podcast where you said, let's talk. If we created a new website and on it, we have a bunch of information things and toxic stress and trying to educate and validate what teens are going through and a few parent things. But the main headline of it is let's talk, right? We want to step into that, that place where you have concerns, questions, stress, whatever, reach out, we're there. That would be the thing I want people to know. Um, you know, we don't we don't have magic wands. We we won't have the perfect solution always because sometimes um, it's just not possible. But man, are we there with you to process through it, brainstorm, to hear you out. Thank you so much to Laurel and Child Help both for all that you do for young people in need of help or in crisis. You can support Child Help and find more information about events on childhelp.org. 
And you can find the chat and other resources Laurel mentioned throughout the podcast at childhelphotline.org.